0: Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Mags with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news, live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Friday, the 12th of January, coming up on our program, reaction to day one of the ICJ genocide case, the South African argument. Will this case have any bearing on South Africa's investment drive at this year's WEF at Davos? The Social Security Agency on the January failure to pay recipients. More on the multi-billion rand fine that software giant SAP has been forced to pay and is another Transnet bailout on the cards. As many as 70,000 beneficiaries are still waiting to receive their January social grants from the South African Social Security Agency. The agency has blamed this failure on what it terms the verification of beneficiary banking details. More details now from Brenton van Vrede, who is Executive Manager Grants Administration at SASA. Mr. van Vrede, welcome to you. Has the situation changed at all? Have any January payments been made or will be shortly?
1: Uh, thanks jeremy and good afternoon good afternoon to your listeners. Maybe just a little bit of a background so the The incident that led to approximately seventy thousand clients not getting paid in January was the result of their social grants being suspended not not a payment glitch or or or, or any issue like that it was we, we suspended those grants in January now we have. We we do it, We do acknowledge that that's it, it. You know, suspension in January was was probably a, you know is is an inappropriate thing to do. We should probably have given those clients a few extra months to correct their details and, and so forth. So we ha- are going to we we will reverse those payments. So not reverse, but reinstate those clients. Um, but the big challenge here is we do have identity questions that then rest over these clients because there's there's discrepancies between the banking details, the records on the banking details and and our records. Um, And and we, so so what what actually happened, so just a little bit more background, we, it's a normal part of our business to make sure that all our records are are perfectly aligned and we got the most accurate record of clients. What happened was during the COVID period, we suspended the record checks for a, Just because we couldn't, you know, we were closed at that time. When we inter, reintroduced it last year, then there was quite a large portion of clients that that, that does have these question marks over them around some of their reports, and that's when we uh, so so. But even since, even though we we haven't suspended anyone, we have been communicating to clients, some clients even for the last two or three years, to say please come in, please to to, to come and update your records because we're seeing a discrepancy on your records. Um, and obviously when you know when you're doing that repeatedly for a long period of time, one does then get begin to get to worry. And the suspension is normally a way then to get a client to come in.
0: What what type what type of discrepancies, Mr von Freda, are we talking about here?
1: So it's it's not material failures, uh, such as bank accounts don't exist or on bank account details, but it's discrepancies largely around the names of the clients um, uh, and also addresses and so forth. So there's two issues that does become a problem here. For example, if a client has had a name change in the past couple of years, uh, it's generally a signal of them having gotten married or having gotten divorced. Um, And for us, because income is based on dual income, both, both the income of you and your partner, that then becomes... You know, a reason for us to believe there's a change in your circumstances, et cetera, uh, you need to come in and you just, so what we call it is we call it the review process. We call the clients in, students um, come and do a review, tell us, give us your most updated records. Uh, and if we see these other things that signal possibly income changes, we're asking for that as
0: well. Right. There, there are, there are um, two big issues, Mr. von Friede, that uh, are upsetting people. One is that many have said their accounts are, in fact, in order. They can prove it, yet they have been suspended. And secondly, there is criticism of SASA about not giving enough prior notification.
1: So it is... I uh, mean that we have to that we can only deal with on a one to one when clients do come in. Um, we get so, for example, we do our checks against the banks. So if if what's on our system and what's on the banks are different, then then we then there will be a discrepancy. Unfortunately, all those processes are digitally, so the only way we can fully go through those processes to have you come in and, and have us in manually. But are you prepared to
0: concede that some suspensions might have been done too yes. hastily?
1: Yes, no, we definitely, and that's why we're going to reverse the suspension. But our key message to our clients are there are discrepancies on your account and you have to come forward. As I mentioned, some of these discrepancies have been coming on for years. Or, or, so yes, we I, I, I fully accept December was the wrong period. A lot of people probably didn't get commas in December. The other worry for us is a lot of people may, your addresses are not up to date. Our main way of communicating with you is via address. Uh, your phone numbers might also not be up to date on our system, which means when we send out comms to you and we get no response from you, especially for a lengthy period of time, then that does create a further worry that do you, you, know, or do, or you exist do you even still exist? Is this suspension,
0: Mr. van Vierde, going to be immediate, which will provide some relief to people, or do they still have to wait until the end of February?
1: Not the end of February, the beginning of February. The beginning of February. So the suspension, unfortunately, the suspension will will be lifted, but because we only have another pay run in February, and it's not possible to implement another pay run between now and February because we also run the social relief of the stress clients, um, uh, which is that other very, very large grant that we have during this period. So um, the, 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 the suspension is, it's not the suspension's lifted, but the payment run will be well, will only happen in the next pay run. We do have an option, which is a manual option, but that does require a client to come into the SAS office, which also means the client has to correct whatever incorrect banking details, etc. The, that the have problem was,
0: and you've admitted this, is that your communication hasn't been sufficient and people are not necessarily aware that that manual option is available. I'm correct, aren't I? Um,
1: I think people are aware. We have a lot of people coming into the office at the moment, uh, requesting for that um, but the, I, my mission is that the suspension wasn't timely it was it was a bad time of the year to 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 have done that um, the problem and the, and the key challenge and the message i want to get is even once we really in state clients clients must still come in and have it because at some point in the current year, we're going to have to run the process again for all clients who did not come forward and correct their details.
0: And if they're unable uh, to come in?
1: The, if, if a client is unable to come in, there are provisions for us to do home visits, uh, but that is only for the elderly and, 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 and people with disabilities, the very elderly and people with disabilities. Remember, it is the responsibility of the client to make sure that their records with SASA is up to date at all times.
0: Breton van Friede, thank you very much for joining me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The German multinational software giant SAP has agreed to pay a criminal fine of 4.1 billion rand to the United States following investigations into corruption committed in seven countries, including South Africa. Some response now from Hanky Matabani from the Black Business Council. And first up, how does your organization then view this agreement to pay the fine?
2: The council views the agreement with suspicion, mainly because we have seen a lot of this happening before taking place. We've seen a lot of companies saying we are guilty. We will then pay back uh, the money or part of the money that we've made. But what we, we have not seen, uh, which is a worry, is that there have not been any direct prosecutions of individuals involved and the companies themselves. So what this is basically giving, is giving an impression that if you have money, you can basically buy justice. And that's where we we are worried to say, but it looks like there's no justice because there are, for example, whistleblowers who have lost their jobs, they've lost their livelihoods. And these companies, they just come and pay and then it's business as usual. So what we're then also calling for government to say, let's then at least use this money that these companies are paying to compensate whistleblowers. We've got a lot of whistleblowers in South Africa who have lost their livelihood. Let's put this money in a fund and then that fund look after whistleblowers, current ones as well and the past ones, but also encourage the future whistleblowers to say, if you come to us with information about corruption and uh, you get almost blacklisted by companies and, and, and government and then you don't get employment. You can then use this money to continue I, living your life the I, way it I do,
0: I do understand the theory, just with, with the understanding, of course, that this criminal fine uh, is being paid in the United States of America, though. Notwithstanding that, yeah. isn't it better that some punishment has been leveled than nothing at all?
2: The challenge is that these companies, they basically, if if you look at it, because they got that money through corruption and they're continuing to do business in South Africa with government and and state-owned enterprises and so on. If you look at it uh, holistically, they don't feel the punishment. The punishment does not fit the offenses that they've committed because they'll continue to make money uh, even in the future. So again, we were saying it's better for national treasury to then blacklist these companies so that they don't do business with government because this corruption was committed against government and state-owned enterprises. So would it, they, would it, be, be, would it be the
0: council's official position then that uh, that that, that SAP, SAP should be blacklisted?
2: Yes, it's, it's SAP and others. You you know you remember the, the Spain and company and others who also admitted and paid money. So all of those companies will be blacklisted by National Treasure because small companies, when they are found guilty of similar transgressions, they get blacklisted. So there must be consistency in terms of treatment. Otherwise, we're creating an impression that those who have money, they can buy justice.
0: How do you believe that corporations can be better held accountable for their actions, particularly in foreign countries where they operate?
2: I think... Uh, if you, you, we also hold the individuals uh, who committed these criminal activities accountable, because then that will deter the current and future executives from from committing such crimes. But if we just say pay the fine and, and that's it, uh, individuals who are thinking of doing a similar thing, they will continue to do it because there's no deterrent They know. Once they are found, there, nothing happens to them and life continues. They become, they move from one company to the other, like we've seen with KPMG, people who are involved in KPMG. And then that cannot be justice. Justice so must be in, seen to
0: be done. I understand. In SAP's case, then, following on from what you've just said, this organization has mentioned enhancing its global compliance program as well as internal controls. Do you think measures like this, then, are effective and could prevent corporate misconduct, or do you take that with a pinch of salt?
2: We really doubt that those will be effective. It sounds more like a public relations uh, statement to say we will we'll do this, we'll do this, but they are not saying we're holding those people accountable. Even the law enforcement agencies are not saying those individuals, because this way were committed by individuals, they are not saying those individuals will be held accountable. And then we have not seen uh, in the past cases that has happened since the Zondo Commission released its report. We have not seen individuals being taken with the orange overalls and and being held accountable as individuals because these acts are are committed by individuals uh, on behalf of the companies. So the individuals benefit; they get their bonuses. Companies benefit; they get their, they make their profits. But when they are found, nothing actually happens to those mm-hmm. people. So we are not going to be able to deter people who are thinking to do the, the same things in the future.
0: And what about the South African officials and enterprises
2: that were involved in this? What should happen to them? The same thing should, should happen. Law must take its course for anyone who is found to be to have committed any act of corruption. Because the intention is to make sure that we stop corruption. But we are not going to be able to stop corruption if. We are not taking actions against individuals. It will encourage people to continue to do corruption if we don't do it. All right. Hanky
0: Matabani from the Black Business Council. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Over the past three decades, close on 4,000 kilometers of rail track has been destroyed. This has been revealed by the Public Enterprises Minister in response to a parliamentary question submitted by the Democratic Alliance. From the party, Dr. Leon Schreiber joins us. And firstly, can you provide more details on where specifically track destruction has occurred?
3: The answer to the question was quite interesting because we asked about both railway tracks and copper cables uh, that had been lost, stolen or vandalized. And the minister's response was, I would say, almost unusually terse. He just sent us a a one-line response saying 3,600 kilometers of railway track and 4,600 kilometers of copper cable under the control of Transnet has fallen into disuse. So what we know from that, obviously, is that the 3,600 kilometers that the minister is referring to is only the freight rail part of the story. So... We know even in cape town for example that the central line under the management of the national government and prasa has also fallen into disuse so that number is likely an undercount but even if you look only at the freight rail uh, infrastructure that has been essentially destroyed that line would run from cape town to kilimanjaro and it would be sufficient to address the crisis on the johannesburg to durban corridor uh, three times over you could lay mm. three return tracks you know, between that particular corridor with the amount that's been lost.
0: So these are horrifying figures. What does it say about the overall state of the network then?
3: Well, I think it it explains the the scenes that we've seen coming out of places like Richards Bay and Durban, where we've now had a complete migration away from freight Rail onto the road network. And if you speak to people living in Richards Bay, I mean, it is destroying that community, the amount of trucks, the volume that's been forced onto the roadways. So not only do you lose the railway infrastructure, but it has a knock-on effect in terms of damaging the roads and contributing to the congestion at the port. It, it really is just a scandal that, that is, is difficult to actually comprehend because there are many countries in this world who would take years, decades to invest in building 3,600 kilometers of railway track, And in this country, we've destroyed that amount. So it really is just a complete indictment on what we've seen under this ANC government.
0: And almost impossible to quantify the economic impact of this destruction.
3: Yes, and so what the DA will be doing next is to, is to add to this picture. We've submitted more questions. We've gotten some of the initial responses on, more broadly, this infrastructure collapse that we know about. So, for example, in the case of National Roads, sunroll has indicated to us that they are currently maintaining only about 2% of South Africa's national road infrastructure on a yearly basis. That is just simply woefully inadequate. We've seen on the copper cable side as well, just from Transnet, the amount of copper cable that's been stolen or lost, if you had to lay that out in one line, it would cross from the west to the east coast of the United States and you'd have 600 kilometres of cable left over. These are staggering, very staggering figures. We will be getting the fuller picture through more parliamentary questions But I think it is safe to say that when you start to count costs of infrastructure destruction under this government, it boggles the mind.
0: What is your response then to suggestions this morning that government is considering allocating more funds to Transnet? It appears as if it's another bailout.
3: Well, we've seen this bottomless pit at ESCOM. We've seen it at the SABC. We've seen it at state-owned enterprises across the board where we basically keep doing the same thing and we expect different results. So if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, uh, Jeremy, we may have been able to say that there are some interventions we could make at state-owned enterprises relating, for example, to the appointment processes. You would know that the DA is doing a lot of work against catered deployment, where we want to get away from this system of politicized appointments uh, that could actually have competent people on the boards and managing these SAEs. So, but unfortunately, that in and of itself is, is no longer n- nearly sufficient for the scale of the crisis. And just pumping more money into these failed enterprises will not help. We need to fundamentally move away now from the state centralized controlled model and bring in private capital, bring in private investment to revitalize South Africa's infrastructure. This is no longer even really an ideological question. But that private, that
0: private capital, yep. uh, Leon Schreiber, that you're talking about, yep. is not particularly interested in Transnet right now, given the powerless position yep. that it finds itself in.
3: But also, linked to that, is the question of whether they would actually have the room to make the necessary changes. There's no point in bringing in private investment, but you still make them subject to the powers or whims of a minister or a political party. So when we talk about private investments, we must be serious about actually moving away from the broken model. And the point is, is this. It's no longer really even an ideological discussion because simply the scale of the destruction that we see in figures like this is of such a nature that Transnet, ESCOM, as Andre De Reiter has recently warned us, will actually cease to exist if you don't actually move away from the state-controlled model. So that's really the choice before us. Either we move away and bring in Real private investment, or we will end up with these entities ceasing to exist at some point in the near future.
0: Leon Schreiber, thank you very much for joining me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Today, the Washington Post is calling it a rare public reckoning for Israel over its war in Gaza, as lawyers for South Africa have argued before the International Court of Justice that Israel's actions, including its bombardment of the uh, enclave, have shown its intent to commit genocide against Palestinians. Today, in fact, right now, Israel is putting its case forward. Watching proceedings as well-known human rights lawyer human, uh, Richard Spur, Based then, Richard, on the presentations made on day one, what are your initial impressions of the strengths and weaknesses of South Africa's legal argument.
4: We made a powerful and dignified case for provisional measures to be directed by the court. I believe that Israel's back is against the wall. It's up to them to persuade the court that their conduct is of such a nature that it doesn't warrant the court's intervention. I don't believe that they're going to push the jurisdiction issue. I think that the previous decisions of the courts, particularly in that matter of the Gambia versus um, Myanmar, Mm. regarding the Ryinga people, settles that issue. Our standing to bring these proceedings I think is settled. So it's going to be up to them to contend that there is no prima facie, which is a word we use, I think they, they use some slightly different term, basis to provide some kind of interim relief and I think that's going to be very difficult for them. But I'm sure that um, when they come out today, they're going to be very aggressive and uh, you know, come out very, very strong and very aggressively against us. I don't think it's going to be a nice day at all. Mm.
0: So in that respect, then, how do you think they will counter the allegations
4: made against them? They have to contend that their conduct in Gaza is undertaken with due regard to the rights and interests of the Palestinians living there, that their focus is on Hamas only, and that the damage that has been done to the Palestinian people is unavoidable, and they are in fact doing their best to mitigate and control that damage. So they're going to have to say, look, we're prosecuting a war against Hamas. We do our utmost to prevent any harm to the civilians living there. We're doing our very best in the circumstances to get aid and support to them and make sure that they can, you know, sustain themselves and that they're safe and secure. And to the extent that we can't do that, well, that's the nature of the war and that's the nature of the enemy we're fighting against. They are going to try and make that kind of argument. They're going to say, look, we're engaged in the exercise of self-defense and these are just the casualties of war, it's very unfortunate, but we're doing the best we can. And if they could do that, they'll probably be successful if they can persuade the court of that. But that's going to be very difficult when you look at the what appears to be absolutely indiscriminate warfare and bombing and destruction of infrastructure and housing. You know, the the curtailment of relief aid. They're gonna say, of course it's necessary. We don't want it to go to our mass. We don't want weapons to be smuggled in. But taken together and in light of the statements and comments of the very senior Israeli uh, politicians and leaders, I think it's it's, it's going to be very challenging to make that Mm. argument. But that's what they have to do. That's the argument they have to make.
0: Richard Spur, how effectively, in your opinion, did South Africa's lawyers argue the case specifically for actions constituting genocide?
4: I think they did an exceptional job. They've marshaled the facts, they've marshaled the arguments, they have the president. I think they've done an extraordinarily good job. I'm very proud. I think what's interesting too is, you know, it's clear now why South Africa was chosen to do this. Our history of apartheid, I think the caliber of the legal people that we have in this country, our experience in arguing issues around human rights, our experiences in courts and international forums, uh, makes us the perfect candidate to bring these kinds of proceedings. I think it's extremely positive, too, because I don't think the international law and the ICJ has enjoyed such a high profile in many, many years. I think it's putting a lot of pressure on Israel to be accommodating. We see them talking back some of the more, more extreme statements. We see them giving assurances about relief and measures that they're taking to uh, you know, address the plight of Palestinians in Gaza, A finding against Israel, which seems, I think, uh, very likely a provisional finding, perhaps even a, a final finding somewhere down the line, is a huge problem. It's going to put Israel in the same position where South Africa was, where it was regarded as a country that's engaged in genocide and war crimes. Individual countries will have a basis and a solid grounding to sanction it if it doesn't Things um, I think there's a real possibility Mm. that this will bring about changes in Israel and the world that might just, perhaps this is overly optimistic, unlock some kind of resolution and some commitment to do it. To the extent that there's a judgment against Israel, it's going to fall squarely on the Netanyahu government, this right-wing government that's ruled there for the last decade or so. And uh, I think it's very bad for them, and I think there's the possibility of some hope, some change, and a different approach to to Israel going forward.
0: So to to your point then, beyond Israel, you're also suggesting the outcome of this case could affect the broader international discourse on conflict resolution and human rights?
4: Absolutely, which is another field in which South Africa has excelled. I mean, the way that In our struggle for democracy here, the law was used firstly as an instrument, you know, to establish the rights of trade unions, free association, um, and eventually as a weapon against apartheid. I think it's that experience that is being repeated. I think we can do the same thing with international law, which has been languishing. I mean, the cynicism towards international law the last years has been overwhelming, and I think this is a really positive development. I think this is really good for the international law and jurisprudence. You know, there are some people who say, well, the ICJ, um, you know, it's a political forum. You can't pay any regard to what they say. Well, I don't think that's true. I think those are very capable judges. Uh, the Israeli ad hoc judge, the South African ad hoc judge, Moseneke and Barak, very fine judges. And I know that many of the other judges are mm. extraordinarily good jurists. I think they're going to come out with a finding that is reason, rational, in line with the law, and that carries all the authority that a decision of the world's highest court should carry. I think this is a very positive mm. development.
0: Richard Spoor. I'm going to thank you very much for joining me. And against that backdrop, the Finance Minister Enoch Gorongwana defending South Africa's investment appeal amidst the Israeli case. He says he doesn't expect the fight against the country at the International Court of Justice to be an issue, particularly at the upcoming World Economic Forum. Let's get a quick view now from economist Davi Root. Do you agree, Davi, with the Finance Minister's assessment?
5: Good afternoon to you. Well, uh, the reality is, is that the Americans and, uh, and the Europeans are our most important investors in South Africa. And the reality, the reality is that political relations between South Africa and those two economic blocks have not been that good recently. And uh, and I listened to your previous interview, and I think that was an excellent interview, by the way. But the the, the the reality is that politics to a large extent determine things like, for example, confidence and investments in a in a, in a country. So I'm afraid there is a possibility that our position regarding uh, what's happening in the Middle East could could affect potentially some investments in South Africa, but a far bigger challenge, if I may. Right, Go ahead. Uh, a, far, uh, a far bigger challenge to South Africa for the Minister of Finance is to sell South Africa the eco- the economy of South Africa. And that is a major challenge. We've seen, for example, last year that we lost about 100 billion rand in foreign investments in South Africa from the various financial markets in South Africa. And the reason for that is because the economy is just not growing and the fiscal accounts have become unsustainable. And that is the job of the Minister of Finance. And I think that's going to be a far harder nut to crack than the, the politics of today.
0: So how does he do that when he goes to Switzerland?
5: He must, there's only one thing that he must tell them, and he must hope that the international investors are going to believe him, and that is he's going to start consolidating fiscal accounts. And that inevitably means that he must spend less money. There's an election around the corner, there's a budget around the corner, and of course the investors will look at those things uh, to, to find out whether the Minister of Finance can be trusted on that or not. And again, there's politics again, but it's local politics this time. Minister of Finance knows exactly what to do, but to do that will certainly make a lot of people angry, and angry people tend not to vote for you.
0: Thank you very much indeed. That's economist Darby Root, and that's where we are going to end the programme today. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Back again on Monday.
2: Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at Midday or download episodes on MoneyWeb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb news on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.